Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Clever Girls Know podcast. This is Bola Shokumbi. I'm the founder and CEO of Clever Girl Finance. The Clever Girls Know podcast is a podcast for women, offering a space for conversations around personal finance, business, life, and living. I'd love for you to subscribe to this podcast, and you can do that everywhere you listen to your podcast episodes. And if you love what you listen to, head on over to iTunes and leave a review so that other amazing women just like you can find this podcast as well. I'd also love for you to stop by clevergirlfinance.com. We have new content on the blog multiple times a week. We have over 30 plus free courses. Plus, when you sign up for a course, you can talk to a Clever Girl Finance mentor for free to get encouragement, motivation, or if you just want to have an open, no shame, no judgment girl talk. Finally, check out our YouTube channel. Just search Clever Girl Finance on YouTube. And if you don't already follow us on Instagram, you can find us at Clever Girl Finance. Okay, so let's get into today's episode. Hey, Cindy. Hey, Bola. Welcome back to the Clever Girls Know podcast. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I'm excited to be back. <laughs> I know. So for everyone listening, Cindy, who's going to introduce herself in just a second, was on the podcast episode 134, and she talked about how she paid off over of her student loans. Go check that out. But she's back today to talk to us about how to be a conscious spender while still building wealth. And Cindy, you have an incredible new book out called Overcoming Debt, Achieving Financial Freedom, Eight Pillars to Build Wealth. I am so excited for you. (laughs) Welcome and introduce yourself to everyone who's not familiar with you yet. Thank you, Bola. Thank you. Well, hi, everyone. I am Cindy Zuniga Sanchez, the founder of Zero Based Budget Coaching LLC, a personal finance education platform for millennial women. And I speak on all things budgeting, saving, debt, investing, building credit. And, you know, my story starts like Bola mentioned with paying $200,000 of debt. Mm-hmm. I found myself in this position where I had graduated law school. You know, I had the fancy degree, the shiny new title, but I had barely any financial literacy. You know, and I think that for me, I was really embarrassed. You know, I was really embarrassed because I thought to myself, how didn't you ever learn this? Like, why don't you know this information? Why don't you know how interest works, how debt works, how student loans work? And I decided to be kind to myself because, you know, I was born and raised in a low income community in the Bronx, New York. I'm the daughter of immigrants. And for me, financial literacy, like the extent of it growing up was literally like, we have enough to put food on the table and to send you to, you know, our local Catholic school. And Mm -hmm. that's about it. (laughs) Like, that's about it. You know, like, that's about what we're going to do. And as you know, my parents as immigrants, they always ingrained this education is the key out of poverty. You know, the American dream will be realized through our daughters. And this is our responsibility. Our responsibility is to put food on the table and make sure they get an education and go fly little doves, you know, go make your way (laughs) in the world. And, and for me, that meant going to law school, you know, I thought, you know, for me, there were really two only options. It was either become a doctor or become a lawyer. (laughs) And I decided that I can't look at blood. So I decided to become a lawyer. (laughs) 
but yeah, you know, that's really where just a little bit of my background and kind of why I started my business is because, you know, while I was paying off all of this debt, I came across a lot of information that I wanted to share with my community. I also just wanted to share my story. I wanted to share with people like, look, this is how much I'm putting towards my debt this month. This mm-hmm. is how many months I have left that I'm targeting, you know, for my my debt freedom date. And the reason why I wanted to do that is because I just wanted to destigmatize this conversation on money. You know, I wanted to make it more relatable, more friendly, more approachable because I mean, Bola, you know, money is the one thing that affects every single person on this mm-hmm. <laughs> And yeah, you know, that's a little bit about, you know, my story, a little bit about why I started doing what I do. And it's now actually what I do full time. I left my job as a corporate lawyer last year in May, 2021. And I've been running my business now full time. And well, girl, it's a roller coaster, but, <laughs> but, but it's been a really rewarding ride. I love it. Congratulations on everything, your book, going full time, paying off your debt. And we've been following your journey here. You know, you came on to share episode 134. And then after you paid off your debt, you also came on episode 161 to talk mm-hmm. about how you are building your investment portfolio. Yeah. And now you have a book. Yeah. I mean, you guys have been there, like literally <laughs> been there. Every That's exciting. Time. Yes. From when I went to your event that you had years ago in New York yeah. City. knee deep in debt and I was just like an eager beaver front row like asking all the questions because I was so excited to finally learn about money and to learn from someone that could relate to my life experiences Mm -hmm. on a level that I felt others couldn't I was eager to learn from someone like you and I'm so fortunate that I have and you know to kind of have you be a part of like all these steps in my journey has been truly like one of the highlights of this whole experience well I'm super grateful to have been in a small way you know gotten a front seat and also to be able to support <laughs> you on this journey I'm, I'm really yeah, excited so you. you recently wrote this new book called Overcoming Debt Achieving Financial Freedom Eight Pillars to Build Wealth yeah. what inspired you to write this book Yeah, you know, I wanted to write the book that I needed when I graduated law school. I mean, heck, when I graduated high school, right? When I graduated college. (laughs) But honestly, in law school, that kind of a gift would have been really helpful of of this kind of all-in-one type of book that's going to walk you through those big topics that maybe our parents didn't teach us, you know, Mm -hmm. that credit investing, building wealth, and yeah, like how to decipher your retirement accounts, even how to calculate your net worth, how to take an honest audit of your finances, how to become a conscious consumer, and all these topics that I wish I would have had more knowledge on, but also in a very visual way. So in my book, I love teaching through examples. So it's never enough for me to just tell you like, this is what a credit score is. It's Mm -hmm. like, no, these are the factors that go into a credit score. And this is how, you know, our hypothetical friend Taylor is going to build her credit (laughs) score, you know, because I think that as humans, we learn well through examples. And so that's really the core of my book. But the book starts off actually by sharing my story. You know, as a Latina first generation daughter of immigrants, there aren't many of our stories 
stories on bookshelves. You see, Bola, there's approximately 60 million Latinos in the United States. Mm-hmm. And if you go to any book or if you look up personal finance books written by Latinos, there are so few of us, you mm-hmm. know, and, and representation truly, truly matters. It's important. It's necessary. You know, we need to read from, you know, books written by Black authors, Latino authors, yeah. authors, Asian authors. We need to read those kinds of books because it is so important for us to appreciate this diverse set of voices that make up our country that make up our world, you know, and I think learning from diverse authors is so critical. And it's something that for me, you know, I remember the first, first time I stepped into Barnes Noble and I went to, you know, the money, finance, economics, business type I was looking, girl, I was hunting, okay, (laughs) for a book that was written by a, a person of color. And I couldn't really find like any, okay. This was back in like 2015. And I was like, I was just searching and I'm like, anyone available? No, like, and it was discouraging, you know, it was discouraging. Now, since then, there have been many authors. I wouldn't say many. There have been a A handful, a a handful, (laughs) let's not many, a handful, handful. (laughs) not many at all, a handful of authors, including yourself, you know, that I have been able to learn from by reading your words, by reading how you teach these concepts, you know, so many other authors like Tiffany, the budgetista, and, you know, there's, there's another couple, they're not coming to mind right now that they just wrote a book, which is, you know, amazing. It's all about like, I think it's called cashing in. I think that's Mm -hmm. the name of the book, you know, and it's like, just reading different words from a diverse set of voices, I think is, is so critical, you know, so critical for us. And, and I'm glad to be a part of that. Cashing out is the name of the book. Mm-hmm. I knew I, I was like, ah, it's like at the tip of my tongue. Yeah. Cashing out, you know, it's, it's so important for us, I think, to learn from others. And I wanted to, you know, be able to offer my story and my knowledge with the world. I love that. And, you know, I can totally relate to your story, walking into books or trying to find books by people of color, be it Black, Latino, and they're just very few and far between, right? I think if you're in the personal finance space, you think that there are a lot of people of color who have written books. So when you compare it to the grand scheme of things, really, you can probably off the top of your head right now, list 10 people of color who have written books and it'll be hard for you to get to 20. Yeah. And it might be near impossible for you to to get to 30, right? So tell everybody, and I think I told you, if you have an audience and you have a topic, write a book. Yeah. (laughs) Write a book. Yeah. (laughs) You need to write a book. I tell everyone. And I, I remember when I was writing my second book, which you're also in, Yes, uh, yes. Grow, uh, grow your money, grow your investing, money. Uh-huh. specific book. One of the things I was tasked to do was, okay, tell me what other books on investing exist out there. So we know what exists in the marketplace and how they have been positioned. And when I sat down to do this research, Cindy, the last investing book by a woman of color prior to mine that had been published the traditional publishing route with a publisher had been 10 years prior. I couldn't believe it. I was like, there's no way it's impossible. Like it's somebody else has to write a book, but you know, so I know that the talent is there. I know that women like you and me exist who have a story to share, who have 
a skill set to share. So if you're yeah. listening to this and you have a book in you, please start to write this. Yeah. Book, especially if you're a minority, because yeah. your voice matters. We need this representation. We need your story. Our communities, we need to see it. So high five to you on writing this book, Cindy. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's been definitely a labor of love. But, you know, like you said, I did similar research when it came to looking for, you know, specifically, I wanted to see, are there Latina personal finance authors? And I found like two. Mm-hmm. literally I found yeah. like two and this is me searching like very carefully yeah. searching searching and I found like two others and you know for me it was like this is completely unacceptable I mean we have yeah. we're a group of 60 million in the United States and like how is it that we have less than half a dozen personal finance books written it's unacceptable and I need to do something about it and it's going to be difficult and it certainly was very difficult for the past year plus I've poured my heart in to this piece of, of work that now I'm so excited I'm going to be able to share with people. And it does involve sacrifice. It does. But you need to, you know, I've had people ask me, like, what kept you motivated? And I tell them exactly that, knowing that my book is going to be among the few, but hopefully will start our ability to be able to say many, right? Mm-hmm. This kind of start of there will be so many more Latino, Latinx, personal finance authors to come, authors of color, you know, of other groups, because it is important. And I think that, you know, we all have a story to share. I completely agree with Bola. If you have something that you can offer the world, which I would argue everyone does, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> definitely see if if a book is in you and, and if you have the ability to write one, I would definitely I say to go for it. Yes, yes. So one of the the angles you talk about in your book when it comes to your pillars to building wealth is how to be a conscious spender. Mm -hmm. And this certainly contributed to your journey of being able to pay off your law school debt and being able to transition out of a six-figure, multi-six-figure paying job into starting your own business from scratch. But your journey didn't just start with you being, oh my God, I'm a conscious spender, right? (laughs) So I would love for you to... (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So take us back to your law school days. How would you describe your relationship then before you came to that event Mm, and you were front mm. seat and taking notes and asking questions the Cindy before that right how would you describe your relationship with money and how you were spending it a hot mess girl (laughs) okay I mean I think that in order to really understand why I was the way I was with money and it's taken me actually years until recently to you know writing the book actually is when I started kind of realizing it is that I think that when you grow up in a low income household and your whole life, you're told, you know, we can't afford that. Not right now. No. Right. Just plain (laughs) old. No. I think the second that you come across some type of disposable income, it becomes very tempting to spend to treat yourself, to buy Mm -hmm. the things that you once were deprived on, quote unquote, you know? And so for me, I think it was, you know, really like in college when, of course, I got my first credit card. And I actually got my first credit card my senior year of high school, back when it was legal to go (laughs) 
into <laughs> high schools, which I don't understand Imagine. why that was ever legal. I mean, now there's restrictions on going yeah. on to college campuses, but back when I was in high school, it was totally acceptable to do that. Same, same. You know, yeah. I, I signed up for my credit card. They sent me my card in the mail with a cute little puppy on it. And I was like, <laughs> yes, this is the cutest. Like, I love it. You know, my limit was $250 and $250 I spent. And all of it. Know, and then the limit increased. So I think it was like 500 and then a thousand, et cetera. And before you knew it, I was using that credit card extremely irresponsibly. You know, I would go to the mall with my girlfriends and I was a little bit of a shopaholic, you know, like I couldn't really see something and just walk away from it. I was also that type of person that if I saw, let's say a pair of flats in one color and it was offered in another color, well, I had to just have the other <laughs> color as well. Of course, you know, now to be clear, like this was like pretty like fast fashion type of clothing. You know, this is before online retailership was as popular as it is now. And I'm sure mm-hmm. we'll talk about this later, but you know, back then, like one actually went to the physical mall and I went into the physical forever 21 and wet seal and express and all these other stores. And I would buy, you know, the cute inexpensive outfits and, and the matching shoes and the matching accessories and all of that. Before you knew it, you know, I had thousands of dollars on my credit card and I carried those habits into law school. But the problem was that when I got to law school, you know, in college, I was very much among my peers, you know, like most of us, I went to a public university here in New York and most of my peers, I would say, were from around the same economic background that Mm -hmm. I was. That was not the case when I got to law school. You know, when I got to law school, a lot of my friends were from more like middle class, upper middle class, wealthy type of homes. Some of them, you know, had like trust funds. Like I always thought that that was like a joke. No, it's not a joke. No, it it is absolutely real life. Like I know our stories are so mirror image because there was a girl who was, we lived on campus and she was my neighbor Mm -hmm. and she had a lime green Mercedes Benz Mm -hmm. convertible and around the plate of her car, you know, the thing that holds up the license plate. Yeah. Yeah. It said, daddy bought it. Guess who got it? (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) So I totally understand. I can relate to you in so many ways right now. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and the thing is that it is, it's like jarring, you know, because it's like, (laughs) oh my gosh, we could not be more different. And I definitely had that experience in school, you know, classmates whose parents would just send them money. Like what a concept, you know, what a concept, you know, for their living expenses. Meanwhile, for me, it was like, I was in law school because I knew I needed to get a great job so that I can help my parents financially. Like I could not be more different than my peers. And so with that came, you know, having to buy clothes that's maybe a little bit more expensive or a nicer pair of shoes or a nicer school bag. And upgrading certain things, even though I don't have any money to upgrade anything. And so it went on my credit cards and I started finding, you know, I I found shopping as this place of, of an instant high, 
you know, I wasn't doing any other types of drugs. So that was my drug. And it was really (laughs) unhealthy. You know, I mean, look, worse things can be done, right? Like, I mean, if you hear from like law students, like it gets stressful, but I was really damaging my finances, honestly. And I, by the time I graduated law school, I had about $12,000 of credit card debt. And look, I understand that it's all relative, right? Like some people have much more credit debt, some people have less or whatever it may be. But for me, that was a lot. You know, it was a lot to have $12,000, $13,000 of credit card debt. And knowing that most of that, if not all of it, is from like shopping. And it's like, what do I have to even show for it, really? You know, wet seal um, items. <laughs> my wet seal items that disintegrated wet in the seal. wash. <laughs> disintegrated like after That's one right. wash. You know, and it's it's I think that for me it was it was really this thing that I needed to confront, but I I knew that it wasn't more money wasn't gonna solve that. You know, more money would not magically solve my spending habits because if I would come across going to spend it, I was going to continue this cycle of going into the mall or as years later, now it's more accessible, just going online, you know, and buying whatever it is that I feel like it. And it was a really unhealthy kind of perspective that I had on material things. And unfortunately, yeah, it did negatively impact my finances. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My shopping spree was at BB. I remember BB. <laughs> See, I remember at one point I thought it was Bebe. I, I was like trying to be fancy with it. And um, Bebe. it was Bebe. And no, it's BB. And it's also a very popular mall store that I too frequented quite a bit. It was a level up from like the way it was. Oh, Once yeah. I got no, the so like, card, I'm like, I'm not buying you would only get, to Bebe. <laughs> yeah, I would only get maybe like a top from there. You know, it was never like a full fit because that was a little out of my price range, but it's crazy when you think about all these like popular mall stores from like the 2000s. And yeah, I frequented all of them. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. But it's interesting to just see, you know, just to hear about your journey of how you were spending your money. And then obviously you've transitioned to this place where you're educating people on how to do better. But I would also love to hear about your observation about how consumerism in America has evolved in the past decade and how it's impacting our ability to build wealth. I mean, I've definitely fallen into that trap of convenience, right? It's so much Mm -hmm. more convenient to buy stuff. I feel like if I was this age as a mom with young kids, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, I would save a lot more money because of the lack of convenience, because I would have to drive everywhere to get everything. And online shopping would not have been much of a thing, but now it's just one click by. You don't even have to, yeah, you don't even have to think about it. You don't Mm -hmm. even have to plan your route. (laughs) Just go onto the website. You can shop, shop while you're doing your, your meetings, while you're doing your work, while you're in your bed on your phone. It's so easy. And then your, your (laughs) credit card information is already stored. It's already saved. So just click by, click by. So <laughs> Tell it's, me your thoughts. <laughs> yeah, it's look, it's so easy. And I think that's kind of like, unfortunately, we've gotten to the point that we're so impatient. You mm-hmm. know, we're so impatient with receiving things that it's really 
morphed our minds, I think, Mm. you know, in terms of our access to goods. And one thing in particular that to me has definitely stood out in the past 10 years specifically is social media. You see, when 10 years ago, I graduated college, I graduated college in 2012. And that was the year that I started Instagram. Like I got an Instagram account I don't know if you remember all those hideous filters, Bola. Like, mm-hmm. you know, those first, like, I, I used to like, use Instagram for my photography. Yeah. Um, yeah. Before well, it became well, this so thing. Yeah. Your, way back well, then. Photos, I'm sure, then looked legit. Mine had like the Valencia <laughs> filter on them. The and filters. it was like, it was terrible, you know, but it, it was, was good. <laughs> it was, it was, it was bad, but it was also like, what a time, right? What a yes. time to engage really on this photo sharing app, which is what it was back then. But you know what it's really evolved to. And look, this is speaking as someone who is actively on Instagram and who's built her community on Instagram is that what we've seen now is, especially with the rise of the other app, TikTok, right? Mm-hmm. Is this really comparison game? right? That we've fallen into Mm -hmm. where before, you know, let's say 10, 20 years ago, we compared ourselves and I write about this in the book, we compared ourselves to our neighbors, right? Like the people that we were around, maybe our classmates, you know, notice people that we physically saw, exactly, (laughs) physically saw us. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Notice how when I was talking about college and law school, I didn't bring up social media at all. Mm -hmm. Right? Because it it wasn't my reality. Like, I mean, the most that we had was Facebook, which is where we like dumped all of our photos that we We had Friendster. We had Friendster. Don't forget Friendster. Yeah, yeah. It was like, (laughs) we didn't engage on it the way that we do now. Yeah, it's different. And so now you're not just comparing yourself to your neighbors or your your classmates. You know, now you are comparing yourself to social media influencers, to celebrities, to people that you never would have even thought about comparing yourself with <laughs> on that level. But now, thanks to these like parasocial relationships that we've developed, it's like, well, no, I am going to go ahead and compare myself to To Jeff Bezos. Yeah. And guess what? We have the same Nike sneaker. So, you know, it's so attainable to spend money like he does. Yeah. Like that's something like you're connecting yourself to, you know, all the the influencers that get the gift box for the, what is it for the Beyonce and Adidas collaboration, Uh, you mm -hmm. know, and it's like, oh my gosh, well, I need all those outfits now too, right? Or Kim Kardashian or Hailey Bieber and, you know, all of these celebrities that it's like, you cannot possibly compare their (laughs) with ours. Like, I mean, it's so, so, so. But it becomes so, the way social media is, it almost feels like these people are so close to touch. And like the comparison seems to you, it makes sense because, you know, that's just Kim Kardashian. She responded to my comment. She's on my feed all day long. Right. But the reality is so stark. But the way our brains work is that it's hard for us to like detach ourselves from that social media attainability to face the reality and the starkness of the difference in our pockets and our lives. Exactly. (laughs) And I think that even look, let's take it a level back, even like, you know, aside from celebrities, you know, we're looking at just like influencers. And so I think that's the issue, right? Is that you look at an influencer that looks like you, you know, maybe has a similar background as you do, but except that she's able to do all these shopping hauls. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and that does influence you. You might say like, oh no, I'm unfazed by social media influence. No, 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 you're not. No, we're, like, all, we're all influenced. We are and all influenced, especially if we're seeing this constantly, constantly. throughout our days. Like yes. we're human, you know, and it's not something to feel ashamed of. It's just something to acknowledge. And I think, I mean, I've found myself in that trap so many times there are things that I own that it's because you know like Instagram made me buy it or TikTok (laughs) made me buy it now I'm not gonna lie I've found some pretty good stuff right (laughs) but you know at the end of the day that is something that we are spending our money on Mm -hmm. and I think what we need to be very mindful of is is the activity really getting me closer to my financial goals Or is it moving me further away from them? And I think that's the thing that we don't have that time to process a lot of times. We don't have the time to analyze or to ask those questions the way that maybe we would have, you know, let's say 10 years ago, because everything is so quick. I mean, you just click like the shop button. A lot of times you can just click what the influencer is wearing, hit the little tab, it pulls you up to the actual page and boom, you insert your credit card details, you know, in two or three business days, it's at your front door. <laughs> or next right? day. <laughs> yeah. I, I am proud to admit that I have never <laughs> to this date bought anything like that on TikTok. Or yeah, Instagram. yeah. I'm so I, proud I, of myself. I, I have not either. <laughs> I don't have like my details logged into like Instagram. You know how if you can like no. save your credit card information and all of that. I don't I trust don't, that entity. I was just going to say, I also don't trust that, you know, <laughs> but yeah. So I am proud to say that I have not done that, but I am not, I, I will yeah, admit but- I have purchased some things because I've, you know, because I've been influenced and, and I think that, you know, a lot of us do and it's okay. Like we're human, but again, I think it's just recognizing like, some of us were on social media really kind of like all day, you know, we'll check it in the morning. We'll check it during lunchtime. We'll check it after work, maybe on our commute back home, maybe right before bed. And it's like, so about it, it's you're seeing all throughout your day, you're Mm -hmm. being exposed to thousands and thousands of advertisements every single day. You know, this is another piece of information where, you know, just 10, 20 years ago, the average human was being exposed to X amount of advertisements. I mean, the amount has beyond doubled, if not tripled what we have been exposed to. Why? because of the internet, because of social media primarily. And I think that, you know, it is important for us to have these conversations because especially as someone like me who, you know, kind of was a bit of a shopaholic, it can be really tempting and it can be difficult sometimes to like peel yourself away from that. Yeah, I agree with everything you said. I mean, for me, I'm not on TikTok. I don't go on TikTok ever. It's just not something that I never got sucked into. So I I never get the TikTok things, but Instagram I'm on. And there are just certain things I don't want to see on Instagram. I just, I don't want to see it because they're distracting. It's stuff that makes me think about it later, even though I would never have considered it in the first place. And I think that, like you said, it's unavoidable, right? Mm. we're going to be on social media, even if we don't want to be on social media, we're going to have to be because we want to monitor what our kids are seeing and doing on there, understand what the trends are and all that stuff. Mm. So I think because there is not this excessive 
impression of social media upon our lives now, we also need to have an excessive focus on our goals Mm -hmm. to stay on track and stay balanced. Because going back to the example we talked about, you know, looking at influencers, looking at celebrities, I watched a woman on YouTube who said that she doesn't even look at influencer celebrities, that she was looking at other stay-at-home moms Mm -hmm. on Instagram with regular Mm -hmm. women, not celebrities, not influencers, but women who either come from money, are extremely wealthy, and are now stay-at-home moms, are married into wealth, whatever it might be. And these women were living their lives in the Maldives, and she was comparing herself to these millionaires and billionaires Mm -hmm. that were, quote-unquote, stay-at-home moms. Yep. Looking yep. at their kitchens, looking well, at their Well, that's the thing is that we're comparing ourselves And she's like, wait a minute. To, yeah, we're comparing ourselves to people that in our brains, our brains are saying like, yeah, you should be like them. They look regular, but guess what? They, they are not regular. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so. something that it is, it is really interesting. You know, it's something that I've certainly found myself doing as well. And that's why I think it's important for us to acknowledge and talk about it because we yes, we yes. all fall into it. It's part of our lives, right? And yeah. it's it's we've all made mistakes. Like I've definitely got caught up in wanting something because I saw somebody on YouTube talking about it. Yeah. But one of the things that really helps with having this conversation with my friend is that I just love watching their regret videos on YouTube. <laughs> I love listen. <laughs> I love watching like what not to buy kind of videos. The regret videos. There's a particular blogger, blogger, I will not mention any names here. Uh And she will do a bunch of like uh, hauls, 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 then a regret video. Mm. So I got used to her flow. So I will watch her haul videos and she'll be so excited. I'm like, this is going to be in her regret video. This is going to be in her regret video. So I was telling my friend, (laughs) she has a new regret video. Let's see what's going to be in it. I bet you this is going to be. And like 75% of the things I said were going to be in that regret video. We're in the regret video. Nailed it. I'm like, good thing I didn't buy any of that stuff. Oh, it's The regret videos will kind of help you check yourself. Yeah. Because these are people being honest. And this is not a judgment on that person because she's, I mean, she's a work in progress. Like she's living her life in an open book. For many of us, we're doing this behind the scenes in secret. I bought 10 things. Oh my God, I regret all of them. But we're not making videos. (laughs) She Yeah. So it's not a judgment on her. It's just... And she's coming to the awareness. And I've also seen people, influencers who have gone through the phase of buying so much stuff, hauling regrets, hauling regrets. And they eventually get to this point of this is not sustainable for the life I want to live. Right. Social media. I'm taking a break. I'm becoming a minimalist. I'm paying off my debt. Like, yeah, at some point, a lot of people will get to realization. But then the thing is, what actions do you take? Right. Yes. Yes. So what's your advice, Cindy? Like, so I'm now at this space where I've hauled and hauled. Yeah. I've had regrets and regrets. I wasted yeah. a lot of money, but I, I realized, okay, this is not sustainable. I cannot right. achieve my goals like this. What do I do? Right. So I think one of the first things that you can do is kind of like, you know, quote unquote, detoxify your space, you know? And mm. so what I mean by that is go through your home. Now this might take some time, you know, luckily we are about to approach winter. So a perfect, you know, weekend activity, if you will, go through your home, each room, go through your bathroom, your living room, your kitchen, your bedroom, and start decluttering. You know, a lot of times people, you know, they associate decluttering with minimalism. And yes, they both very much go hand in hand. And then they may, you know, the person may think, well, I don't want to be a minimalist. And well, I'm not asking you to, I'm just asking you to start being a little bit more critical of what it is that you own. 
you know, so go through each room, you know, maybe you do one room a day kind of thing, right? You like write it out, write out a list. I actually talk about this specifically in my book, because I think it's so important for everyone to do this, whether you consider yourself a minimalist or a maximalist, it doesn't matter, right? It's just try to first be very critical of what it is that you own and look at all of your items, you know, kind of gather them if you can, or whatever it is, and start setting aside the things that you're like, this doesn't bring value to my life, right? Mm-hmm. This doesn't really, let's say, spark joy like Marie Kondo famously coined, right? And for example, with your kitchen, if you see that you own two can openers, girl, you don't need two can openers. <laughs> Maybe we keep one, right? <laughs> well, in my house, we need two can openers because oh. I have I have a left-handed can opener for myself and then everybody else uses the regular can Look. If that is you, okay, <laughs> or if you have like a bedazzled can opener, that that's is the counter attack, you, right? <laughs> exactly. You know, the thing is that you have to just be honest with what works for you. Like for some people, they need the whole set of, you know, 10 knives, for example, right? In their kitchen, like they actually make use of all of that. But if you're a regular person that really, needs maybe let's say like three knives like a parry knife a chef's knife and kind of like a you know all-in-one type of situation then the rest maybe you can declutter I mean I know it sounds so trivial right like oh my gosh I can't believe we're talking about like knives and you know utensils in the kitchen but that's how it starts right like yeah start there go through your pantry I know you have expired items in there I know you do go look at the items look at the expiration dates and toss the things that are expired you know if you have a surplus of certain things, you know, in your kitchen, your bathroom, whatever it is that are in like very good condition, you know, can you donate stuff like that? You know, shelters are very much in need for basic supplies. You know, here in the New York area, especially in the New York area, we are experiencing a migrant crisis, right? Where like so many people that are fleeing their countries are, you know, some of them, unfortunately, not even by choice, they are being sent to mm-hmm. states like New York and they come with nothing. Like they don't have anything. Yeah. You know, they need clothes, they need supplies. Can you go through your closet and make an honest assessment of, I don't really wear these items anymore, or these are like my aspirational pieces that, you know, I wanted to wear, but they still have the tags on them. Mm -hmm. So start by going through your home and kind of detoxify yourself of stuff. And then look at what is it that you kept and why do you like that? you know, whatever it may be, let's say a great fitting pair of jeans that you decided to keep. Well, why did you keep it? Well, I like how it fits. I like the feel of it. What about that sweater? I really enjoy. I love the color. It complements me really well. It fits me well, right? All these things. Because when you start really understanding what it is that you are actually using, I mean, see, that's the thing. That's what it comes down to is that we buy so much more than we will ever use. And I think that when exactly. And I think that when we come to this point of being really honest with ourselves, that is when you start becoming more critical of what you will bring into your home. You know, I started my kind of minimalism journey, if you will, 
when I was a first year associate at my law firm, I had graduated law school, you know, I had a ton of credit card debt and I realized that I needed to figure things out, but it wasn't going to be enough for me to just pay off my credit card debt. Like I really need to get to the root cause of my problem. And for me, it was just the accumulation of stuff. I had a studio apartment in Harlem and I had enough stuff to comfortably fit like a one to two bedroom full-size apartment. Like that's how much stuff I had that was just like crammed in my closet. Hmm. And so I took things out and I started filling up those like black construction bags kind of, right? Started just filling them up with stuff. You know, some things I donated, some things I actually was able to resell, which is a great way to make, you know, maybe some additional cash, right? And then other things I did have to toss, things that were either like stained or really old or whatever mm-hmm. it may be. And so you make your piles, right? You make your piles of what you're going to keep, what you're going to sell and what you're going to donate or what you need to toss. Make your piles and that's how you start, you know, because a lot of times we'll want to jump to the, oh, well, you just need to start asking yourself, the questions of what am I going to bring into my home? We'll get there, right? That's part of Mm -hmm. this equation. But first we need to start with where we are in the present. Okay. So once you kind of have a good idea of that, you have a good idea of what it is that's in your home that you actually do value, then we can go on to the next phase, which is what are we going to now bring into our home? So the next time that you're tempted to buy something, instead of just buying it, first of all, ask yourself, do I value this, right? Like, is this something that is going to add to my life in whatever way? Get very, very critical and get very honest because no one else is going to be monitoring your decisions but yourself. And then you're going to want to do something called cost per use or the cousin of cost per use, cost per wear. So for example, let's get you go into a store and you see a really cute pair of boots, right? First of all, do you need these boots, right? Do you have something that looks just like it in your closet? Is it something that's going to complement, you know, various outfits? Is it comfortable, right? If you're going to buy like five inch heeled pair of boots with a skinny little heel, you know, and the boots are, let's say $500, I'm sure they're beautiful, but are they practical? Only you can answer that question, right? And so from there, you're going to want to calculate cost per wear, which is take the full price of the item and divide it by the number of times that you believe you will reasonably wear them. So let's Mm -hmm. continue with the example of the $500 pair of boots. Now, this is a very expensive pair Mm -hmm. of boots, right? Which means that with more reason, you should really, really be thinking about it. And if you're like, well, realistically, I'm only probably going to wear them like on the weekends because they're really special. So let's say maybe, you know, realistically, no more than five times this season, would I wear those boots? Well, you know, that might have a little bit of a high cost per wear versus a similar pair of, let's say, really comfortable, low, you know, types of boots, let's say the same price, right? $500. But you're going to wear those, say, you know, 20 times Mm -hmm. this season. I mean, that's how you do the math, right? Like realistically, I'm going to get more use out of these comfortable, warm boots that I'm going to wear at least 20 times this season brings my cost per wear down to $25, right? Versus these more like 
uncomfortable, special occasion type of boots that I'm only going to get a handful of wears out. Now, of course, I use the really simple example of, well, one, a pretty large dollar amount and two, you know, just one season, but you never want to buy something that's only going to be in your life for just one season, right? We want to look at the longevity of things as well. And so that's also where you want to be more mindful of you know, something I like to talk about a lot is, you know, about sustainability and the wasteful impact that the fashion industry has on our environment, you mm-hmm. know, and, and this is from someone who loves, you know, I, I love clothes, right? I love <laughs> things like that. And and if, if I had it my way in a perfect world where there was no harm to the environment and there was no such thing as, you know, harmful labor practices, I would buy all the things, right? But That's not the world that we live in. You know, we need to be much more conscious. You know, I think conscious spending, conscious consumerism goes hand in hand with also seeing not just how your purchasing decisions are going to impact you and your wallet, but also the world, right? Like how are the things that you are bringing into your life? What kind of impact is that making on our environment, right? On labor practices. And this is a lot, right? There's so much that goes into these decisions. You know, money is one part of it. And it's a very, very important part of it, but there's so much more to it. And I want to encourage, you know, everyone that's listening to this to just, you know, I'm not saying that you have to make an analysis for every single item in your home, right? Like you probably own thousands of items in your home. I'm not saying that you need to do that, but I'm saying that at least be a little bit more critical with what you do own and be maybe a little extra critical with what you're going to bring in as well. Yeah, I agree. And I'm a huge fan of Costco where I mm-hmm. I use this assessment pretty often, not all the time, because there are some things that, listen, the Costco is not going to make sense, but I like it enough <laughs> to own it, right? The Costco is not going to make sense right away, but maybe, you know, over the long term, it might. But most things I purchase, I definitely think about Costco where cost per use, how often am I going to use it? Yeah. And I'm one person who dresses up every day, right? My friends like, where are you going? I'm like, nowhere, but I'm going to get my Costco wear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We love a Costco wear. I was the we girl that it. was dressed up every day. Well, the first month of the pandemic, I did the pajamas with everybody else. And then after that, I was done with that. I'm like, nope, nope. We're going to shower. We're going to dress up. Well, we're gonna like, no, 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 no. This is not matching my fly. <laughs> not working. Okay. Costco wear is not working. <laughs> Yeah, but no, it's it's important. And I think that it's really important for us to think about what do we own? Are we yeah. getting a good cost per wear out of it? You know, for not everything will it all be magical, right? I'll give you an example. Let's say you find a really beautiful dress that you want to wear for a special event. And that dress is, let's say it's $200. And you're like, you know, it's so beautiful though. And it's so special. It's going to make me feel really great on this, you know, I don't know, special evening. Maybe it's like your best friend's wedding or whatever it is. And you go ahead and you buy that item. And then you see that, you know, like, let's be honest, maybe you're not going to rewear it again. Well, first I would challenge you to like, can you try to wear this item again? You know, if for whatever reason you're like, maybe one more time max after that, then sell it, right? Pass it on to someone else. Yeah, pass it on to someone else that can, you know, that can get good use of it. I had this one dress. It was a Ralph Lauren dress that I bought at Macy's and I wore it for like my law school prom or whatever. And I swear that's like the sisterhood of the traveling dress. (laughs) That dress, when I tell you, Bola, that at least 
four of my friends wore that dress. I'm not even kidding you. Like they wore it to weddings. One of them wore it to like her husband had this like gala thing for his job, you know? And it's like, be open about these types of options with your friends, with your circle, or, you know, if you have it available to you, then maybe you can relist it, you know, sell it, get some money for it and pass it on to someone that will get use out of it. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, when I'm buying a special occasion dress, best believe you're going to see me wearing this dress multiple times. I had such a dress. I had to sell. (laughs) My husband was like, do not listen. Don't wear that dress again. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, no, just don't. No, please stop it. No, we need need another option. (laughs) (laughs) So I end up selling it. But yeah, I'm big on, on selling. I love sites like The Real Real. And also when you think about sustainability, obviously a lot of us like fashion, we like nice things, but you look at these pre-owned resale websites and a lot of the stuff on there is significantly discounted and it's also brand new, right? So why not kind of help with or participate in sustainability that way? Before I let you go, Cindy, I just wanted you to talk briefly about value-based spending because we've we've talked about cost per wear, we've talked about decluttering Mm -hmm. going through your house, Mm -hmm. talked about, you know, just overall consumerism. But how does one focus on value-based spending in line with building wealth, right? Because we're not saying never spend any money, but you can also spend money intentionally. So please break that down for us. Sure. So, you know, with value-based spending, you're going to put your dollars towards the things that matter to you, that bring you value. And why I'm saying it's specific to you is because what someone else might value, what society may value, may not be what you value. So again, it requires, once again, this honest assessment of what is it that I really care about? Spend Mm -hmm. in that area. Okay, so if for you, you really enjoy, you know, taking your kids out to these events, like let's say right now in the fall, there's like the pumpkin farm and, you know, apple picking and you enjoy those types of experiences with your children, then make sure that you include that in your spending plan. Right. Mm -hmm. If something that maybe, you know, all the other moms in your mom group are buying for their kids, like, I don't know, an expensive toy or whatever it is, and you don't really value that for your family, then don't spend on that. You know, I know it's easier said than done, but acknowledge the temptation to spend in that area. But then ask yourself, does this align with me? Does it align with my values? Does it align with where I want to be, let's say, five or 10 years from now? If the answer is no, then don't spend in that area, but do make sure that you are intentionally budgeting for the things that you do care about, you know, because I think that what we find often, especially when it comes to personal finance and money management is so many people will say, well, no, you have to cut in that area and that area and that area. But Mm -hmm. if you're cutting in an area that, you know, brings a lot of value to your life And you do so, you know, with hesitation because you're like, I really don't want to give that up. Like, I really genuinely enjoy that. Let me tell you right now, you will resent your financial journey. You will resent the progress that you're making and the moves that you're making because it's not going to be aligned with you. And I'll give you an example. For me, for example, I don't care to buy a car. Like, I don't value that 
item, right? And I know most of America does. I mean, we're also a very car, you know, friendly type of culture here. And for me personally, I really value walkability and more kind of cities where I can access things pretty easily, you know, like shopping and groceries and things like that. And so I am not going to spend on a car, but maybe I am going to spend on an apartment that's going to get me closer to the thing that I value, like, mm-hmm. you know, walkability, for example, right? That's one yeah. example of something that is true to me that I know is important to me and to my husband. But, you know, for someone else, they might say, well, I'm okay with spending a little less money on housing, you know, if it gets me closer to, let's say, like, in area, but I will spend money on a car you know, and that's fine. Like that's their right. Right. But you need to, again, ask yourself, like, what is it that's aligned with me and my values spend in that area and in everything else, cut it, right? Like, I'm not saying you need to cut it dramatically, but cut in those areas that don't bring that sort of, you know, added value in your life. Yeah, I totally agree. And I operate the same way. There are certain areas in my life that I enjoy spending the money because there are things that are meaningful to me. They I value them. And there's other areas where I just, I don't enjoy spending money mm-hmm. there because I don't see the value. It's, mm-hmm. It is of no value to me, right? Yeah. So thank you so much for sharing that. You have to tell me, has your Clever Girl superpower been updated? What is it now? <laughs> I think my current <laughs> Clever Girl superpower is focus. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that I'm in this season of my life that the past year has really been marked by focus. Writing the book has, you know, really taken a great deal of focus and discipline, which I believe was my like past Clever Girl superpower. But I think that with focus, I think all of us can really look to what is it that we want to concentrate our efforts on in this season of our lives? And stay true to that. So for the past year, it's been writing my book. And right now, my focus continues to be on sharing the book, you know, with the world. I think that a lot of times, especially in nowadays, we are taught that multitasking and spreading ourselves thin is the way to go, right? We have to do all the things and we have to do all the things at once. But I would challenge you, is there one specific area in your life deserves your attention in this season. Well, then focus on that. You know, and I think that for me, being able to cut out the noise, me, especially someone that has always had 500 million things going on, and being able to instead just pour myself pretty completely to this project has been an incredible strength. And it's been something very different, very unlike, you know, the things that I've done in the past. And I'm I'm definitely proud of it. So, you know, of course, with that, right, there's immense privilege of being able to kind of dedicate your time to just like really one main project. And maybe that's not the case for you. Maybe for you, it's something like, well, I really want to focus on being more intentional with being a better partner, right, to my spouse or my boyfriend or my girlfriend or whatever it may be. Well, what can you do specific to that, right? I think the theme of today's episode has really been operating from a place of intention and being really mindful. And I think that that has definitely been the case when it comes to me focusing on my book that which I have been for the past year. And it's been hard, but you know, I'm proud of it. I'm proud of it. 
I love that. I love that. And then finally, please tell everyone where they can find your book, where they can keep up with you, remind us of what it's called. (laughs) Yes, yes. So you can find Overcoming Debt, Achieving Financial Freedom, Eight Pillars to Build Wealth on Barnes & Noble. Um, target.com, Amazon, of course, you know, speaking of convenience <laughs> and also my website, zero-basedbudget.com slash book. And I am most active on Instagram. You can find me at zero-basedbudget, no spaces. I'm also on TikTok, although not quite as active on TikTok. TikTok is definitely challenging me because it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like this whole like, all the interactive, all the like super short videos that it's like, you know, you have to pack like a chapter full of information in like 20 seconds or people are going to just scroll past you. Yep. So it's been a little bit of a challenge, but I am on TikTok as well, but I am most active on, on Instagram and I'd love to connect with you all. Just let me know that you found me through this episode and, and yeah, let's connect because at the end of the day, this is all about community. And I think that it's really important that we build wealth in community. Yes, I love that. Well, thank you so much, Cindy, for being here. Congratulations on your book. I wish you much success with your business. And of course, I'm always rooting for you. So yay, thanks for being here. Thank you, Bola. (laughs) Thank you so much for tuning into this episode, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you've loved the episode, but you don't yet subscribe to the podcast, you can do that everywhere you listen to your podcast episodes and head on over to iTunes and leave a review so other amazing women just like you can find this podcast as well. Thank you so much for being here and I'll talk to you on the next episode.